Hi there, this is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting in Ottawa, Canada, and you're listening to An Intelligent Look at Terrorism, a podcast about, surprise, surprise, all things terrorism related. If you've been following the news over the past few months, you've probably read where there are peace negotiations going on in Doha, which is the capital of Qatar, which is a Arab Emirate on the Persian Gulf. And these peace talks are being held between the United States and Afghanistan. And they are a precursor to the Trump administration's desire to finally withdraw all U.S. troops from that country. They've been there, of course, since just after 9-11. The interesting thing about these so-called peace negotiations is that the main partner at the peace table is the Taliban which of course is a terrorist group, one that sheltered Osama bin Laden throughout the 1990s. And uh, one of the reasons why we, meaning United States and its allies, including Canada, went into Afghanistan in the first place. So what the heck are we doing having peace talks with a terrorist group? Now, there are a lot of things surrounding this particular issue. And so I thought I would bring in uh, an old friend of mine, who also happens to be from the University of Ottawa. He's currently in Washington, D.C. right now. His name is Cameron Bukhari. He is the Director of Analytic Development at the Center for Global Policy. And he's also a senior lecturer at uh, my institute, the Professional Development Institute, University of Ottawa. And he's going to walk us through exactly what the heck is going on. So, Cameron, thank you so, so much for being part of the podcast. Hey, Phil, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's get back to a very simple question. What are these peace talks all about between the United States and primarily the Taliban? One would have thought that the Afghan government would also have a role at the table. So who are the players here and, and what's at stake? So there are two components to uh, this peace negotiation. There is the component between the United States and the Taliban. Uh, and then there is the component that's known as the intra-Afghan dialogue. Uh, and the way it's been sequenced is that there uh, has been a preliminary deal. I think this was done way back in uh, early spring uh, between the Trump administration and the political representatives of the Taliban movement based in, in Doha, Qatar. And the agreement was that, you know, um, the United States will withdraw uh, and there would be a new power sharing understanding or agreement between the various Afghan factions, primarily between the Taliban and what we call the Afghan state, the factions uh, that are part of the Afghan current Afghan political system. Now, uh, the, the problem that we've run into is that, A, um, these negotiations aren't new uh, between the U.S. and the Taliban. It just so happens that under the Trump administration, uh, you know, the, the long shadow or the long history of the conversation that Washington and the Taliban have been having, some behind the scenes, some publicly, uh, came to fruition. And when I say these conversations, they go back to when uh, current special representative Zalmi Khalilzad was serving in the Bush administration. And there were early talks about having negotiations um, somewhere around 2003 uh, was the first time that there were uh, there was an outreach uh, two years after their regime was toppled, and that wait 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 camera let me, let me, sorry you're saying these talks have been going on since 2003 so two years after 9 11 there was already an effort to talk to the Taliban 
Yes, there was. I mean, I think that what has happened is that um, right after 9-11, the United States and the Bush administration had a an, an imperative to respond to the 9-11 attacks. And at the time, you know, as intelligence goes, uh, we didn't know, you know, the, the scope, the size, the shape of the enemy. Um, we, uh, you know, if we had good intelligence, we probably would have uh, been able to deter the attacks from taking place in, to begin with. But uh, because of sort of the massive shock of what happened on 9-11, uh, you know, terrorists using planes to plow into buildings, uh, you know, the World Trade Center, uh, the Pentagon, and even the, uh, you know, the Capitol building housing Congress was a target. And that plane, uh, you know, missed that target, thankfully. And, and, right. and but a lot of lives were lost, even in that uh, plane that went down uh, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania. So that, obviously, that whole situation required a military response. And if you notice that uh, before you know, uh, engaging in regime change, the United States spent a lot of time uh, through the Pakistanis and other actors like the Saudis trying to get the Taliban to, to hand over Al-Qaeda and its leadership, bin Laden included. And as you mentioned earlier uh, in your introduction, uh, not only did they house, the Taliban were housing bin Laden, they refused to hand him over. And that's when- I remember United that. Yeah, that, that. That's when the United States basically went in for regime change. What I'm trying to say here is that the United States did not want to necessarily go and topple the Taliban regime because it was it knew it was a messy situation. It the fact that the United States was not getting what it wanted, and the realization on the part of the Trump I'm sorry the Bush administration at the time that there isn't this neat divide between the Taliban and Al Qaeda. So therefore, uh, it it makes sense to go and you know uproot this entire edifice. Now the problem is that was uprooted, but the insurgency was continuing, and at the time there were some suggestions that if you bring certain Taliban leaders into the political new political process, which was called the Bonn political process, uh, based out of the city of in Germany where there was a political agreement to create a post-Taliban regime, that you would actually have, you know, that would take the sting out of the, the insurgency that, that had begun, you know, pretty much. Because if you remember, the Taliban declined combat and uh, they went home and that's what guerrilla movements do and they come back to fight another day. And so those early efforts were an, uh, part of the whole thing that if we had negotiations, then whatever insurgency would come about when the Taliban regrouped would not be as powerful and it could be dealt with more effectively. That didn't happen. The regime that the United States created did not really take off. You know, it had so many problems, infighting, weaknesses. Uh, and in the meantime, the Taliban insurgency kept gaining strength. So between 2003 and when the Obama administration decided to negotiate in 2009, when President Obama took office, uh, the Taliban regime uh, insurgency had grown in strength. And so we see negotiations, you know, during the Obama administration. Um, and at that time, I think there was a realization. I know my former boss, George Friedman, the founder of Stratfor, wrote a, a seminal piece at the time 
uh, around Inauguration Day, actually shortly after inauguration, when President Obama said hey, he's going to go and you know for negotiations uh, with the with the Taliban, among other sets of negotiations, like with the Iranians and so on and so forth, that it was not necessary to fight Al Qaeda. It was not necessary to fight Taliban. And I think that's the principle that has so, uh, strung these talks along uh, over these many years. Sorry for the long-winded response. No, no. To provide context. No, it's very important. I appreciate that. Is it not problematic, though, that the, as you said, a, a variety of administrations going back to the Bush the second Bush administration have been engaged in peace talks with what everyone knows to be a terrorist group. Now, I did notice rather strangely that the Taliban is not listed by the State Department. I thought they were as a as a terrorist group. You know, if you look at what's been happening over the past couple of months in Afghanistan, while these peace talks are going on in Qatar, you've had daily terrorist attacks by the Taliban in which hundreds, if not thousands, of Afghan civilians have been killed in, in bombings and in shootings. What does this, how does this frame the Americans' claim to talk to the Taliban when not only are they a terrorist group, but they're carrying out terrorist attacks on a daily basis in Afghanistan? So you're absolutely right. And I agree with you, Phil, that um, this isn't good. You know, if you just if you're just asking my value judgment, uh, this isn't good. This isn't ideal. Uh, and, you know, I wish this wasn't something we were doing. But what we want and what we can have in the world of geopolitics, that variance is massive, yet we just don't really appreciate that. And I think policymakers, those who have to pull the trigger one way or the other, have to deal with that reality. And I think that what's happening here is, um, and I, it's not just that I think, it's, it's, it's actually very clear that uh, there's, for many years, there's now been sort of a, a bifurcation, at least an analytical bifurcation between those jihadists, those Islamist terrorists, those Islamist militants who operate within the con confines of a nation state and their political ambitions do not go beyond those boundaries versus those who have transnational ambitions, undertake you know, transcontinental terrorist attacks, have ambitions to topple not one government, but multiple governments and redo the entire architecture. I'm talking about ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda and groups like that. So I think that, that where we are right now is the realization that in order to counter the, the, the more, uh, if you will, uh, dangerous actor with far more dangerous ambitions, you have to do, uh, you have to counter them by doing business with those who may have the same ideas, use the same methods, but are content in, you know, gaining power within their own country. I give you an example. Uh, you know, the last time the United States did this in a major way uh, was to side with Stalin to get rid of Hitler. Hmm. And, and so it's the same sort of argument. No one is saying that the Taliban are not terrorists. Uh, or they do not engage in terrorism, but I think what's happening here um, is is I mean, and, 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 and you know, it, it's not a very comfortable position to be in for any American administration, uh, especially if you've spent, if your country spent 
a trillion dollars mm. uh, at least, and you have spent 19 years, uh, you know, fighting these same people. And we'll get into this later, but I just want to sort of highlight this is uh, wait till this get to, to counterterrorism cooperation, if you will. Mm. I mean, mm. the thought of us actually doing counterterrorism with the Taliban, uh, you know, just is mind boggling to say the least. People will be turning over in the graves for sure. I actually like the analogy you made between Stalin and Hitler. So it seems to me then, Kamran, that in the world of politics and international relations, I get it. it's, a, it's a blood sport. I'm not naive. I didn't fall off the turnip truck yesterday. It almost seems that we're willing to sacrifice the interests and the safety of Afghans uh, so long as what happens in Afghanistan doesn't spill out of its borders into the rest of the world. Is, is that an accurate way of looking at it then? Sadly, yes, it is. And, and, and in fairness to, uh, you know, uh, to, to, to sort of uh, really look at this in a far more nuanced way, uh, there will be those who would argue, um, you know, my job as an analyst, I, you know, I have my personal preferences and I've been sharing them with you in the course of this conversation but, you know, I got to make sure that I keep wearing my analyst hat. And so as an analyst, when I look at this and I say, OK, so why are these people doing this? Why is the Trump administration, you know, doing this? And, and, and so are they do they not care about the Afghan people? Why are they throwing them under the bus, so to speak? And the, I, I mean, I, I have to contend with, with the counter argument coming from, you know, the, that school of thought that says, well, we don't have an alternative. And besides, mm. we're not really be doing a whole lot, uh, you know, for the Afghan people, because that's not in our control. We can't turn mm. this place into Wisconsin, uh, you know, and we've been at it for such a long time. And, you know, so then how long do we keep pumping in resources in what President Trump calls, quote, endless wars? Mm. A fair point. You said the, the war has been going on for the better part of two decades. I've seen the figures of over a trillion dollars as well. It is hard to make, make out any progress. It seems like it's one step forward, three steps back in, in Afghanistan. There is the one aspect of this which I find interesting. And that is I've seen uh, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State and other officials downplay the current link between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Now, of course, as we just talked about, Kamran, the Taliban... Uh, housed al-Qaeda in the 1990s, of course, through 9-11, refused to give up bin Laden. Historically, they've had a very close relationship. The way that I read the open source information, I don't have access to intelligence anymore, is that there's still a fairly close relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda. So two questions then. Is the U.S. administration being honest when it assesses that those links aren't important? And secondly, is this all really, when, when push comes to shove, is this just a way to use the peace talks to provide the veneer to justify a U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan? So I, I don't think it's either or. I think the reality is somewhere in between. I think that, um, you know, Secretary Pompeo, um, you know, and, and his statements and those coming from other officials in the, in the uh, Trump administration, they basically point to a situation where uh, they understand that there's al-Qaeda out there. But I think the understanding is that uh, over the last 18, 19 years, uh, Al-Qaeda has been uh, decimated sufficiently to where uh, we don't need to be present in country the way we have 
in order to be able to keep it, uh, uh, you know, keep the lid on Al-Qaeda. And so I think there's that aspect. The other thing is that, as you know, ISIS has eclipsed Al-Qaeda. So -hmm. there is a bigger threat here. And uh, I mean, it's very obvious that the way that the United States, after leaving Iraq, had to go back into Iraq. Uh, I mean, uh, our country, Canada, had to put forces in Iraq. We had, you know, the, the operations uh, in Syria as well. And so to, to basically go after ISIS. So I think here in Afghanistan, I think those two sort of concerns converge. And they say, okay, you know what? Look, we keep forces and they're in the background. They're about like six, 7,000 troops, uh, you know, roughly around that number right now. And then the heavy lifting is being done or at least being uh, or the effort is being made to do the heavy lifting by the Afghan forces. Right. That's not going to work in the long haul. That's not sufficient because we can't be there ad infinitum. And Mm -hmm. they uh, they haven't demonstrated the ability to sort of fly solo, if you will. Right. There are limits. So and you and if you and if this situation continues ISIS is going to keep growing. And I remember a couple of years ago, you know, we had that, you know, massive ordnance penetrator uh, bomb, the, the Moab, yes, dropped yes. on ISIS headquarters in, in Nangarhar province. And we did some considerable damage to ISIS. But look, you know, these are like, it's like mowing the lawn until the next time. <laughs> and, and, and this grass is going to grow. So I think from the Trump administration's point of view, and this is something that they didn't come up with. This is what the Obama guys were also thinking. Uh, is that if we stop this, the war, if we contain the war in Afghanistan and we get the Taliban to go and be the policemen or at least, you know, um, have a power sharing arrangement where they are also part of this effort to make sure there are no actors in this country using it as a springboard to launch attacks against other countries, then that could be called a bargain. Now, I want to point out that, uh, and it isn't discussed um that uh, in in that depth, or people have forgotten about it, that in 2007, uh, with the you know at the height of the uh, Al Qaeda in Iraq insurgency, the bombings, you know, the daily multiple bombings against Shiites and U.S. forces, you know, it was it was a very bad time, and the Bush administration was was seen as you know not in control of the situation. Uh, that's when General David Petraeus, who was the commander of the U.S. forces, engaged in something that was. Uh, you know, out of the box. He basically negotiated with those Sunni political principles who were siding with Al-Qaeda in Iraq at the time, ISIS's precursor, predecessor, Mm -hmm. and said, can we take these tribal people off the, uh, you know, off the battle space? You know, can we take them off the battlefield? And because these are indigenous uh, elements within Iraq that are not going away anywhere. But if we can drive a wedge between them and the foreign fighters around Zalqawi and, and his followers who were, you know, they were foreign fighters. And then we can, if we can address their political needs and bring them into the political system that's currently dominated by the Shiites and the Kurds, then we can really better manage, uh, you know, then, you know, AQ uh, in Iraq becomes far more manageable in terms of a, an entity. That principle is be, is the same. It's the same principle that we're dealing with in Afghanistan. Okay, 
I get a lot of what you're saying. And as I said, I fully understand the frustration that not just the Trump administration, but the Obama administration, the Bush administration felt about this never-ending war that was going on in Afghanistan. So the desire to withdraw makes a lot of sense to me. And yeah, sure, maybe the Taliban will agree in principle that we won't, you know, we won't allow Afghan territory to be used by terrorist groups to strike abroad. So what happens if six months later, the, Af- the Taliban say, hey, guess what? We were just kidding. We had our fingers crossed behind our back. Do we see another situation where the Taliban are essentially creating a terrorism central and something happens internationally and then it draws in the international actors again? Is that a, a potential scenario? It is possible. Look, you know, you can't trust them. And I'll tell you why. It's not because just because of their ideology. I, I, I don't know, you know, if you follow my work that diligently, my, my school of thought has sort of moved from ideology, you know, heavy to tradecraft and interests of actors as well. And I look at I look at all actors based on, you know, how the, their behavior as a function of how they see their interests. So, I think that the Taliban uh, can't be trusted because of where they are at this moment and what their needs will be, uh, assuming this these peace talks do not succeed. And um, I want to say and be on record to say that I would be really surprised that if in the short term we actually had a peace agreement that sticks, that you know that we actually come out of these negotiations within with a solution that's for real and not just sort of signing off and then when America goes home they take out their knives and guns and keep start fighting again. So in that scenario I'm assuming that this isn't going to work. In that scenario the Taliban will then need, want to be able to use their military advantage on the battle space to overwhelm their opponents. Uh, and when that happens they're going to need a lot of force multiplier uh, you know, affect as, uh, you know, to the extent that they can get. Who's going to give that? That's going to come from all these foreign fighters that are there. And so they they don't, I, I, we can't trust that they will actually keep these guys under lock and key. Nobody does anything for free. So if these guys fight for them, uh, uh, you know, then they want to be able to do their own thing. Look, mm-hmm. you know, this is what the Taliban were doing in the 90s. Uh, right. Al-Qaeda fighters were helping uh, uh, the Taliban on the battle space in exchange for having a territory and being left to do what their own what they wanted to do, which was the 9/11 attacks. Right. And and if you remember, uh, a, a prominent anti-Taliban commander, uh, uh, Ahmad Shah Massoud, was assassinated mm-hmm. by Al Qaeda operatives posing as, you know, journalists and cameramen uh, on the eve of 9/11 on the eve of 9-11. So yeah. we can't trust these people because their needs are as such. The other thing is that uh, they they have ISIS on their tail now. ISIS is saying, its message is, if you believe in, if you believed in the Taliban, they've betrayed the cause, the jihadist cause. And so uh, you need to join us. And there are a lot of people within the Taliban rank that are looking at this and saying, is this true? And they're having second thoughts and, you know, the more radicalized elements, the people, and not even just the more radicalized, the people who can't, who don't know anything but fighting. And mm-hmm. they're going to go and join ISIS. So what does that mean? It means the Taliban have to be able to uphold their, if you will, radical credentials. And they're going to do things that 
uh, will violate, will, will, you know, will not be at least in the spirit of the agreement. And so because of who the Taliban are, what their interests are, they cannot be trusted. Wow. <laughs> I can't say you're painting an optimistic scenario. Kamran, uh, the, the other thing, of course, is that we can't ignore the Afghan people. They're the ones that have suffered the most over the past 20 years. If this peace deal peace deal goes through and the United States withdraws most of its forces from Afghanistan, let's assume the Taliban will, in effect, become the government of Afghanistan. What does this mean for the Afghan people? I've seen statements by Af- or Taliban leaders. Oh, yeah, we're going to respect women's rights. Oh, yeah, we're going to let girls go to school. Oh, yeah, we're, we're nice people. At the, at the end of the day, can this possibly be at all a good news story for the Afghan people? So uh, it, it could be. We live in the hope. Uh, but that means that uh, those opposed to the Taliban, the anti-Taliban camp, uh, you know, has a lot of power. There's more equity in this, you know, power sharing agreement that we're trying to put together. But we know that that's not going to happen. And the other thing that we have to be worried about is that uh, the current Taliban leadership have had a long time to sort of do what they call political learning. And that doesn't mean that they have, uh, you know, reformed. Uh, I'm actually saying that they, how to do what they do in a far more sophisticated way. So they're telling us what we want to hear. They're telling us, oh, don't worry about it. You know, we're all for women's education. That was a mistake what we did in the 90s and we've learned from it. We're not that. Don't judge us. And we're all for women employment and whatnot. They're telling us what we want to hear, you know, in in, in the Intel business that, uh, you know, you're very familiar with. It's called Info Ops Mm -hmm. and and PsyOps. They're playing games with us. And they're telling us what we want to hear. They're giving us what we what we need to hear to, to sort of keep rolling that ball forward in terms of the uh, the whole political process. So they're going to suppress. So we're not going to see, you know, uh, like blatant, uh, if you will, uh, acts of violence where people's hands are being cut off. Women are being, you know, attacked and people are being uh, whipped in stadiums and, and the, you know, things like, you know, the, the destruction of the Buddhas of Bamiyan that they did back in the 90s. They're going to do this in a, in a very political, uh, legalistic way, uh, and, and they're going to enshrine this. What I'm saying is that the only scenario that I see uh, these, uh, this peace process succeed is that at the end of it, at the end of that, you know, rainbow, uh, we get a state that looks like the Islamic Republic of Iran, only that it's going to be in Afghanistan. It's going to be a Sunni version. So that's what we're looking at. And that is far more dangerous because there's going to be systematic, uh, if you will, suppression of women, uh, of minorities, of anybody who disagrees with the Taliban ideology. So they're not going to be crude with their methods. And that makes them far more dangerous. <laughs> Well, I, I must say, say, Cameron, I've known you for a great many years and I have a great deal of respect for your scholarship, but I cannot recall having uh, hosted a guest on my podcast that has left me more pessimistic than you have, than you have today. I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but that's what will raise us. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a realist. One last question, Cameron. 
Let's assume that Joe Biden wins the election in a little more than a month's time. Do you see any major change of direction under a Democratic White House versus the Trump administration? So, uh, look, uh, there's not going to be a course reversal because this is the course that, uh, as I said, isn't something that Trump came up with. It's a gradual progression from the from the Bush administration years. And so what we will see is, uh, you know, uh, a readjustment, if you will, of the whole process, um, because that's what new administrations do. Um, if you are to make a point of comparison, it's not that, you know, Trump is would make a better, uh, you know, would uh, would make war against Iran when he nixed the nuclear deal. He just wanted a deal that could put that was better from his point of view and something that he could own as opposed to just inherit. So apply that to a future Biden administration and the Afghan political process. So they just can't sort of say, okay, you know what? Um, If you want to put a big burqa over this country, we're fine with it. Just make sure AQ and ISIS is under lock and key. Uh, The Biden administration will be under pressure from its its constituents uh, that are minorities, that are women, uh, that are far more sensitive to human rights. Uh, and therefore, he's gonna, his administration is going to have a tougher time uh, extracting concessions from the Taliban. Uh, because at the end of the day, look, you've already, in principle, everything is negotiated in the back channels. The, the, the core deal is done that, look, we're going to withdraw and you're, we're going to recognize you uh, and, and do business with you. You're going to get off the terrorist list if, there is, if you are on there. Or, and we'll remove sanctions and we'll treat you like normal, you know, the, the whole diplomatic courtesy and international legitimacy. That's already done. The question is, in what shape or form and how do you sell it to the, to the world and the details? Uh, and I think that's where we're going to see a difference in the way the Biden administration deals with this. And then, of course, you know, uh, there's the ongoing debate in the policy world amongst policy experts uh, that, you know, uh, is this nationalist versus transnational jihadist bifurcation uh, real uh, and to what extent, or is it just an analytical category that we came up with to make sense of ground realities that are so fuzzy? Mm. I've always said we have to be very, very careful with drawing categories around terrorism because A, it's so fluid and it does change uh, quite a bit. And we tend to be sort of stubborn in trying to maintain things that are no longer applicable. Bottom line, I guess, Cameron, is that we're going to have to watch this space and see what happens with the negotiations. We'll see what happens after November the, the, the November 4th elections and where it goes. I, just, I want to thank you for taking the time. I've known you, like I said, for, for, for a great deal of time. And I always have a great deal of respect for your views on things. And you've, you've given us some really interesting insight into not just these negotiations with the Taliban, but the Taliban support for terrorism, what the Taliban are doing in Afghanistan. And I think uh, my listeners will agree that uh, we're, we're a lot better informed today because you took the time to talk. Much appreciated, Cameron. Thank you so much. And really, it was a pleasure to be on your show. So that was my conversation with Cameron Bukhari. I'm curious what you think. Have you any experience? Do you have any views on peace talks with, with the Taliban? You can reach me on e- email, borealisrisk at gmail.com, or on Twitter at Borealis Saves. You'll also find me on LinkedIn and on Facebook. 
If you want to subscribe to all the content from Borealis, go to my website, borealisritz.com, hit the subscribe button, and if you provide me with your email, you get a free daily digest every day of all the content. I'd love to hear from you. We'll talk again soon. Until then, stay safe. Thank you.